All right, good morning. Good to see all of y'all this morning. Uh, let me just state the obvious. The reason I can see y'all right now is because we're sitting in a room that's lit up. Stating the obvious. I like stating the obvious. It makes me sound smart, like I know what I'm talking about. Uh, and the reason that we're sitting in a lit room is because just a few miles from here, uh, we are beneficiaries of what is the Shearing Harris nuclear power plant. We benefit from the power yield that is taking place just a little ways from here, uh, and then therefore we get to sit in here with heat and air conditioning and lights and uh, loud guitars and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, I'm grateful for the nuclear fission. Can I, can I, can I get all sciencey this morning a little bit? Uh, for the nuclear fission that takes place right down the road. Uh, and as grateful as I am for the power and the energy output from that facility, uh, the truth is that there is one negative to what happens right down the road, and that is that nuclear power yields nuclear waste, okay? Um, what, what, goes, what happens there is that they put fuel inside the nuclear reactor. It splits atoms. That releases incredible amounts of energy, which is what lights are, are lights this morning. Um, but the, the reality is that that waste that is produced is highly toxic. Now, as far as like all sorts of the, all the different forms of energy production that there is that we benefit from, nuclear energy, nuclear power is among the cleanest. It's among... Um, that, that which is the most efficient, there's, there's relatively small amounts of waste as a result, but the waste that's produced is going to be radioactive for at least a thousand years. And we have to go through extreme measures and expenses to make sure that it's put away somewhere safe so that it's not messing with our water supply or messing with the butterflies or just messing with nature or anything like that. So we don't have a Chernobyl type incident around here. Now, there is a different kind of power, and I know that, you know, these days especially, we're all about trying to be greener and more efficient. We want clean, renewable uh, sources of energy, which is why, you know, Stark is hard at work trying to figure that out. Some of you just got that. All right. Um, but there is an, a power out there that actually yields more power, that it's a greater power than that yielded at a nuclear power plant, and that it's 100% efficient, clean, reproducible, sustainable energy. It is so, so efficient that it wastes nothing and it produces no waste. And I'm referring to the power of God. I'm referring to God's divine power, which he so graciously offers to each and every one of us for our daily living and to empower our lives. And we, we looked at these two verses last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 12 says this. God is speaking to the Apostle Paul, and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. What, he, what he's saying there is that all this bad stuff that happens, God somehow uses it and appropriates it inside of him in such a way that he then can sense, feel, and thrive in the power of God. So, again, I'm coming back to the science thing here. Basically, what this means is that God's power in us is actually more the result of fusion rather than fission. So before I lose you completely, let me explain here what, what I mean by that. In nuclear fission, what you do is that you take a nucleus and it's split in two. So one nucleus becomes two nuclei. That's the waste. One thing becomes two and it has to be disposed of and it's highly, highly radioactive. That's the waste material. Fusion, what it does is that it takes two or more nuclei and it combines it into one. What's really cool about nuclear fusion is that the weight of what is created after the fusion is less than the weight of the combined material beforehand. So before you have two or more nuclei, they weigh a certain amount. 
when they come together in fusion, the end result, the, the whole thing becoming one, weighs less than the initial product. There's no waste. It's actually way more efficient. Something new is produced when you have fusion. And that's how God works in us. He takes all the ugly nuclei, the hardships, the trials, the tears, the aches, the pains, the, the tribulations that we get, that he go through. He takes all of that and he then by his grace causes this nuclear spiritual reaction inside of us where he takes all that junk he combines it in us in such a way, to such a degree, that we become something brand new. And we become lighter. Because Jesus did not, Jesus say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's looking to take weight off of us, make things better for us, turn us into something new. That is what God is after. And this is really kind of sort of what we're getting at in this little series that we're in. We're discussing God's glorious efficiency and one of the greatest promises that God has ever given to us in all the Bible, which is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, we know that for those who love God, all things, not some, not most, but all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if we trust in Jesus, if we've given our life to follow after Jesus, God makes this incredibly profound promise that he will use all of the good, the bad, and the ugly. He will use all of the hardships and the chaos and the drama and the brokenness that we all experience. He will take all of that and appropriate it toward our spiritual good. What that means is that your pain is not in vain in God's hands. What that means is that all of the tears that you've ever shed because someone hurt you or you've been harmed, all of your tears are not wasted. Not a single one is wasted. God somehow takes all of that and uses it for your spiritual enduring good. He turns you into something different. He turns you into something new as a result of all that stuff that you've experienced in your life. And in fact, spiritually, you get lighter. You get lighter. Burdens are removed. You're, you become weaker, but in that weakness, you're stronger in God. A full person, uh, full of grace, full of power, brand new. Uh, so in God's hands, nothing is wasted. Is that good to know? Good to know? I hope so, because that's what we're talking about today. All right, so if you have your Bible with you, uh, please open up to the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, and open up to chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37. The last two weeks, y'all, we focused on how God uh, works all things in us for our own personal spiritual good. That's what we discussed the last two weeks, and I really do hope that all of us have and are gleaning incredible amount of joy and strength and confidence knowing that there's nothing in your life that's wasted, nothing that comes your way that's wasted, that God uses it all to, for your good. That's good to know, right? But today, I got, I got to be a little big brother today. Today, I actually want us to take a step forward and toward maturity today. And it's this. It's that while God is in fact, working in each of us for our own good, what is greater and grandeur and ultimate is that God is working all things for the good. Not simply for our good, but for the good. That, and the reason I think that this is an important topic for us to consider is that, you know, whether... Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you're a Christian or not, but I'm speaking here to the, the person who proclaims Christ as Lord. Um, those of us who call ourselves Christians, there is this incredible tendency toward Christian narcissism. And, and it goes along with all this false teaching that's getting spread in the world that, that, that's tickling our ears and making us feel good about ourselves, that God is Santa Claus and he just wants your life to be really good for you right now all of the time. And so we, we tend to be very narcissistic, thinking that God just wants everything in my life to be perfect and wonderful here on earth all of the time. And so 
I do praise God that he is on our side. I praise God that he is with us, that he is absolutely for us, and he, he wants what is in our best interest. But we need to know our role, and we need to stay in our lane. Folks, this, this may hurt some of y'all. You're not the most important thing in the universe. Some of you are shocked. Spoiler alert, God does not revolve around you, okay? We have to fight against this tendency, and none of us will say those things. Like, we know better. Like, none of us actually think God revolves around us. None of us actually thinks we're the most important thing in the universe. But how we act and how we react when something bad happens actually goes to show that that is, in fact, what is in our heart. When we get all mad and disappointed and throw a fit and get mad at God and all kinds of stuff because things in our life are less than ideal, what our heart is revealing is that really we do think we're the most important thing that God should cater to us. That, that's what we're doing. So if we want to grow as a love-filled, a faith-filled, hope-filled follower of Jesus, we need to recognize that what is most important to our gracious and wonderful and good God is his glory, not us. What is most important to God is his story, his plans, what he is after, what he is after. You know, when God says that he works all things for the good, this goes way, way, way beyond just our individual self. There is something much, much greater at play that goes beyond us. And this is really what we're going to see in the story that we're looking at today. That when God says, I work all things for the good, yes, it's for your good. But there's something bigger, greater, grandeur, superior at play. And that's what we're going to see. God works in all things, nothing is wasted in his hands. He uses it all for the good. So I'm going to do something I've actually never done before. I'm going to preach 13 chapters of Scripture. Some of y'all that have been with us for a while are like, we will be here for three days. And that's if we take no breaks. <laughs> We're going to look at the story of Joseph, okay? Um, a lot of musicals and animated shows and, I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? Been made about the story. It's a very famous story of the Bible. We're just going to walk away pretty much through the whole thing, okay? Challenge accepted on my part. We will get out by lunch, I promise. In chapter 37, verse 1, we're introduced to Joseph. He's 17 years old. 17. It's a young guy. 17. Uh, he's the great-grandson of Abraham. So if you were to flip back, and I'm not asking you to, but if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation. So it's just Abraham and his wife, and they're, old, they're in their old age. They're seasoned citizens, and they're, they're, they're pretty old. They're well beyond childbearing years. They've never been able to have any children. God makes a promise. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So through your family, I'm going to bless all the families on planet earth. So here we see that God's plan is to bless the world as far back as Genesis 12, right? God's plan is to bless the world, and the way he's going to do it is through Abraham and through his family line. So that promise begins to unfold itself out. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob is Joseph's father. Uh, interestingly enough, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 10, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Okay, some of you got the bonus answer on that one, all right? So that's where the term Israel comes from. Like when you hear God's people, Israel, it's because God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and so Israel became the family name. Okay, so... Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, we hear that Israel, so Jacob, Joseph's father, loved Joseph more than his other sons, and he gives him this beautiful, ornate, lavish coat, this uh, robe of many colors. So just as a sidebar to parents, 
just parenting 101, whatever you do, don't love one kid more than the other. There may be times where that's actually easy to do. But whatever you do, don't love one kid more than the other, regardless of anything. And it, don't give one kid better treatment than the other kids or kids in your family. Because nothing good ever comes out of that scenario. Oh, Rick, why do you say that? Well, the story actually tells us why. Because in verse 4 of that chapter, it says that the brothers hated Joseph. Well, of course. The brothers have this instant hostility against Joseph because he's daddy's favorite. Okay, so nothing good comes out of that ever, ever. So the family drama, and there's family drama, and you could go back, like, read Genesis, by the way. It actually is my favorite book of the Bible. It's, like, incredible. You think you have family drama and dysfunction? You will feel much better after you read Genesis. Like, you're cool, and your family's okay. There's hope for you. So it, the family drama gets worse, and in 37 verse 5, it says that Joseph has this dream. He shares this dream with his brothers, and as a result of sharing the dream, the brothers hate him more. Okay. In my experience, every time I've heard this story taught or in a musical, not that I watch musicals because I'm a dude, but <laughs> in, a, in an animated series or anything like that, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Um, every time Joseph is portrayed as some kind of arrogant individual, like he's walking around all puffy and smug, like, oh, I'm better than you brothers, and you're going to bow to me. Folks, that is not what is happening here whatsoever. The dream that Joseph had is not just a, nor a dream like most of us have most nights. He actually has a prophetic revelation from God. Joseph is a prophet, so this dream is a vision in which God is disclosing some information, something about the future. So here, Joseph is simply sharing with others what it is that God has shared with him. You follow? Nonetheless, regardless of why he's sharing it or what it is, the brothers hate him. So a little bit of time passes, moving on in the story. Uh, and the brothers are out there. They're watching the flock somewhere out there, and Jacob... Daddy Jacob sends Joseph, hey, go check on them. Go find your brothers. And uh, Joseph goes out to, to look for them. And in uh, chapter 37, verse 18, the brothers see him coming and decide to kill him. Well, this escalated quickly. I mean, this went from normal family dysfunction to a Jerry Springer show real quick. Like, this, this, this went bad. This went south real fast. So the brothers, they grab him. They strip him of this wonderful fancy coat that daddy had given to him, and they throw him down into a pit. Well, they were going to kill him. One of the brothers intervened and said, no, 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 don't kill him. So they threw him in a pit. The, the brother was going to come and save him later, all right? But the other brother's like, ah, we'll just let him die. The idea was we're going to throw him down there and just let him starve to death or thirst to death, or an animal's going to get him, okay? So anyway, this is carrying on. This is going on. They throw him into a pit, and then in chapter 37, verse 25, it says that the brothers sat down to eat. Right, immediately after that. That's just cold. That's brutal, isn't it? But I, I will say this, like this actually goes to show how much horror we're capable of. To be able to cause that kind of damage to someone out of jealousy and anger, to be that embittered towards someone that we would cause damage and then go and have a meal. Like, this is what's in the brothers' hearts toward, toward Joseph. Crazy. So they're enjoying lunch. A caravan, says a caravan of merchants, travels by on their way to Egypt. So in verse 26, one of the brothers, his name is Judah, has an idea. You know what? If we just kill him, there's no money in it. And we don't want our brother's blood on our hands anyway, so let's sell him. So now they've gone from potential murderers to human traffickers. Just like that. For a buck. And they end up selling Joseph to this caravan of merchants for just a few pieces of silver. So then to conceal their crime, because they want to cover it up, to conceal their crime, they take a goat, they slaughter the goat, they take Joseph's coat, they dip his coat in the blood. They take it to Daddy Jacob and said, 
What do you think? I think an animal ate him. Well, that's just cruel now toward the dad, right? That's just, I mean, so, and this is daddy's favorite. So, so Jacob, it tells us in the story that he just mourns and, and he's grieving, obviously, over the loss of, of his son. All right, chapter 39. I mean, we're making progress here. <laughs> chapter 39, verse 1. Joseph arrives in Egypt. And there he's bought, because he's a slave, he's bought by this guy named Potiphar. Potiphar is a high-level ranking official in Egypt. He, is, he knows Pharaoh. He's, he's up there. He's up in the echelon of that society. So real quick, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're a prophet. You haven't done anything wrong at all. Your brothers absolutely detest you. For no reason that you have caused. They're jealous of you. They hate you so much that they sell you into slavery. So one minute, you're at home. Daddy's favorite with this fancy coat, right? Sporting around this nice blazer. Probably had like the elbow patches in it. It was a nice tweed, I'm sure. Like one minute, he's daddy's favorite at home with his coat. And next thing he knows, he's a slave in a foreign land. How many of us would say that this is fair? None of us, right? Would any of us dare say that he's living a charmed life? Nah. No, none of us in our right mind. No, we wouldn't say that. And that makes the next verse perplexing. Chapter 39, verse 2. Joseph there um, is told of him. The Lord was with Joseph. I wonder if Joseph felt that. I wonder if Joseph felt that God, that God was with him. What he said if, he, if we had asked him in this moment, hey, is God with you? And this is goes to show, this is goes to show us that just because things are not going our way does not mean that God is not with us. Okay? Our circumstances do not determine whether or not God is with us. What determines whether or not God is with us is that he is faithful. And he is always faithful. He keeps his promises. And he has promised that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We are forever in his hand. And nothing and no one can take us out of his hand. No matter, no matter what circumstances are true of our life. So I, I would hope that that would encourage all of us. If you, if you happen to be going through a difficult time, that I hope that that comforts your heart, knowing that God is faithful to you. God is with you. If you're, no matter what it is you're enduring, whether it's financial or relational or, or health-wise, whatever it may be, God is with you. If your faith is in Jesus, he's with you. He's not going anywhere. He's not leaving you, okay? Take, take comfort in that. God is with you. Hear those words. Embrace them. You know, we're going to sing later, Great is thy faithfulness. That is an anthem if there's ever been one written. Great is God's faithfulness, y'all. Okay? So we're told in the story, a little bit further down, that Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. By, but what we mean by that, he's the Derek Zoolander of his day. He's the Chris Evans of his day. He's Captain America, right? And in verse thir uh, chapter 39, verse 7, it says that Potiphar's wife, so his master's wife, turns her eyes to him. So she had the hots for him, and she decides she's going to pursue a little something on the side with, uh, with Joseph. So she... She, so think about it though, it's not just his master's wife. His master is a high level official in the land of Egypt, which happens to be the empire on the planet at the time. So his master's wife is trying to like get with, and it says that Joseph rejects her. Like he just keeps rejecting her because she's trying. It says day after day in the story, day after day, day after day. He rejects her. Well, one day, they're in the house, and all the other slaves and all the other servants, everyone else is outside, and Joseph is just inside doing his thing inside. No one else is there but Potiphar's wife. 
So she takes opportunity of them being alone, and it says that she grabs his garment. In verse 12, verse 12, 39 verse 12, she grabs his garment and says, lie with me. She's, she, she's not flirting. She's not batting eyes. She's not hoping he catches the signals. I mean, she could not be any more explicit. She grabs the garment. Now, this shouldn't be funny, but in my sense of humor, it is funny because it says that he runs out and leaves the garment in her hand. That is straight out of a cartoon. That's Tom and Jerry. It's not like back in the day they had drawers on underneath. Like he, the slave just had a robe. Like he had one piece. So when she grabs it and it says he flees and she, he leaves the garment in his hand, my man runs out buck naked. <laughs> did, I, did someone just say amen? <laughs> Whoever that was, let's talk afterwards. <laughs> Oh, you just knocked me off my game. <laughs> wow. That's going in one of my books in about 20 years. All right. Well, the saying is that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? So she's been rejected. She's been humiliated, right? That this slave won't help her out with her little needs or whatever. We've lost control, Jesus. Get it back. <laughs> and so she's so scorned by this that she actually accuses him of attempted rape. Okay? In verse 20, he's thrown into prison. Into the king's prison. So, I mean, just imagine how easy of a case this was. Like, as soon as he ran out, she actually, knowing, oh, I got him now. If, he's, if that's how it's going to be, I'm going to get him. She starts screaming. He's outside naked. Her case is easy. He's a slave anyway, right? They throw him into the king's prison, which is to say a maximum security facility. Um, this is the place where they throw the enemies of the state, people on death row, the worst of the worst. This is where they throw Joseph. And this gets more perplexing because in chapter 39, verse 21, right after he's thrown in prison, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. See, at this point, this is where we're tempted to say, you know, God, this being with me stuff really isn't working out. Let me, let me try this on my own for a while. Maybe it might go better for me if you're not with me. Because if this is what it's like for you to be with me, let me just try it on my own. Uh, I think that we're, we're very capable to make that say, that to think that way today, um, I could have slept with so and so, but I didn't. I'm actually acting moral. I could treat them the way they treated me, but I'm not. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm taking my vitamins. Saying my prayers at night. God, I, I'm with you. I know you're with me. So how come my life is so poor right now? How come I'm going through all of this stuff right now? Again, folks, it not, our circumstances don't determine whether God is with us. His faithfulness determines whether or not he is with us. So I know it's tempting because life is cruel and life is very discouraging from time to time. But bear with me. I'm going to get to a point here that I, that's going to wrap this all together here really soon. Okay, but just bear with me. God is with you. And that's always better than if he's not, even when things aren't going well. And it's always better with him than apart from him, always. All right. So just when you think it can't get any worse for our boy Joseph here, it actually does. So chapter 40, we're making serious progress. Chapter 40, verse 1, it says that the king's cupbearer and the baker, so Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker, they do something wrong that ticks off the Pharaoh, and he has them thrown into prison, into the exact same prison that Joseph is in. One night, the cupbearer and the baker, they have a dream, and it tells us in the story, it troubled them. 
So again, this is not just your run-of-the-mill dream. This isn't like a dream like you had last night. This is a, a vision. They somehow know that there's something to what they saw or sensed that goes beyond just a normal dream. Joseph is a prophet. So he tells them, hey, dreams and interpretation of dreams are from God. Share it with me, and I will tell you what it means. So they share what it is that they saw, and the... Um, uh, and Joseph tells the cupbearer, oh, I know. I know exactly what this means for you, brah. Like, in three days, it's all good. In three days, the Pharaoh is going to put you back in your place in the palace, and everything's going to be fine. Life's going to return to normal. You're going to be okay in three days. Turns to the baker. He says, sorry, brah, not for you. In three days, you're going to be hung. Just like that. And it happened. In three days, cupbearer is back up in the palace. Baker on the end of a noose. Okay, it happened just the way Joseph had stated. So right when he gave the news, the good news to the cupbearer, he gave him the good news. Right after that, Joseph asked him in chapter 40, verse 14, Hey, man, when, when you get out, could you put in a good word with the Pharaoh? I mean, could you, could, you, could you help somebody out here, bro? Like, I'm in prison. I shouldn't be here. I'm not even from this land. Help a brother out, man. Like, like before, before anything else happens to me, put in a good word and get me out of here. And, and here's why I say that this got worse for Joseph. For in that moment, what did he have? A glimmer of what? A glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope. But the problem is that no, no further does the cupbearer step out of that prison. The cupbearer forgets all about Joseph. According to chapter 41, verse 1, two whole years passed by. Two years passed by. In chapter 41, verse 9 says, Then the cupbearer finally remembered Joseph. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Two years. Two years. His brothers hate him, so much so that they wanted to kill him. They wanted a profit off of him, so they sold him into slavery. He ends up in a whole other country, enslaved, then ends up in a maximum security penitentiary, not because he did anything wrong, but because a woman accused him of attempted rape. There he is, and the one guy who maybe possibly could get him out of that situation forgot about him. Is that right? I mean, is there anything fair? Like, can it get any worse? Like, whatever hope he may have had at this point, I'm saying it's slayed. It's done. Well, in chapter 41, what happens is that Pharaoh, he has two dreams. Again, not your every day, every night kind of dreams. These are visions, something that's given from God. They disturb him. He knows that there's something to them. So in 41 verse 8, he calls this council together. These magicians and sorcerers, occultists, diviners, basically wizards and warlocks. I mean, it's something out of like a strange movie. The, the supposed wise men, all these people come in to interpret this vision. None of them can do it. And that's when the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. So he says in verse 12, Hey, there's this guy back in the prison where I was that one time when I messed up. Uh, I told him a dream, and he interpreted it, and it came true. Maybe he can interpret yours. So he finally remembers. Pharaoh listens to that. He has Joseph brought to him. Pharaoh then shares this dream with Joseph. Joseph, being a prophet of God, he says to him in chapter 41, verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So he's not taking credit. Right? He's not taking credit for what he's saying or anything. He's giving all the credit to God, every last bit of it. This is what God is up to. And in the next few verses, uh, Joseph just reveals what the dreams reveal. There are going to be seven great years in the land, seven years where the crops are amazing. And like the fruit and the grain, and it's just going to be overflowing. It's going to be awesome. And then that's going to be followed by seven years of severe drought and famine where you're not going to be able to get anything to grow anything in the land. Well, Joseph not only interprets the dream and tells Pharaoh what is going to happen, he actually offers a plan for what to do with the information. 
And so he says, you know what? What you need to do, Pharaoh, is simply this. You need to appoint someone to lead this, this operation and have this, this leadership structure in place where they're all operating. And during the seven good years of collecting the grain and put them in storehouses, setting up a system so that when the bad years come, there is an opportunity for people to buy grain so that our people don't die and starve to death. Well, it sounds so good to Pharaoh that not only does Pharaoh listen to the advice, but in verses 40 and 41, Pharaoh appoints him to be the guy to run the operation. Pharaoh, in, in verse 41, actually promotes him to second in command in the nation. Again, it's not just a nation, y'all. It's an empire. This is the mightiest empire on the planet. So here, this guy, Joseph, is promoted to the second most powerful position on earth. Just like that. Just like that. In verse 42, Pharaoh gives him off his own hand. Pharaoh takes off his own signet ring and gives it to Joseph. The signet ring was, the, was symbolized power, royal power. So he says, all the power that I have, I'm giving to you, Joseph. He gives them clothes, robes, fancy jewelry. He, he decks him out with a Mr. T chain. It says like a gold necklace. And in verse 45, it says that Pharaoh actually gives him a wife. Well, this is cool, right? It's kind of nice. He's 30 years old when this happens. 30 years old. This is 13 years after being betrayed by his brothers. So this foreigner, this slave, convicted rapist, becomes the second most powerful man after 13 years. After 13 years of slavery and imprisonment, he becomes not, a, not only a man of incredible status, but of incredible wealth. And through his wise leadership, through his leadership, countless people are saved. Like, the operation is successful. They gather, they collect, and they have food for when the things go bad seven years later. All right, I'm going to ask a question. It's completely rhetorical, and just FYI, it's a trick question. Would you say that his life has been redeemed? Has Joseph's life been redeemed, y'all? Foreigner, slave, prisoner, all of a sudden, second most powerful man on planet Earth and wealthy beyond means. Has he been redeemed? And I would say no. Not in the slightest. I think that regardless of his newfound status and wealth, I'd rather that, I, I, I'm sure he'd rather none of that have taken place. I'm pretty sure he'd rather not have been a slave and in prison and rather that whole time just been at home with dad and his brothers. Right? In any way, in any way, does this newfound money and status and wealth and position, does that justify everything that he's gone through? No. No. doesn't make it worth it. Not the horror stuff that he went through all those 13 years. The mistake that's often made when this story gets taught is that, you know what? If you just stay faithful to God and hold on to him, Right, and, and hold on, don't, don't run away from Jesus during the hard times. He'll turn it all around and he'll make you prosperous on earth. If you just hold on with all the faith that you have to him, he'll take your, your disease and he'll turn it to health here on earth. Or he'll take your poverty and he'll turn it to riches. That's false teaching. And this story oftentimes gets used as an example for how God turns that around. But this is not what this story teaches. Because how many of us would rather go through what he went through for fame and wealth? No. I'd rather be back home with my family than go through all that. I'd rather be poor with my family than go through the mess he went through. So, I don't think his life has been redeemed. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Joseph's family is back home in the land of Palestine land of Canaan. Joseph's family's there, and they're in danger of starvation. The famine was not just in Egypt. It was throughout the land. It was, on, it was global in scope. Jacob, being the father that he is, 
he finds out that there's grain in Egypt. He loves his family. He says, we got to do something. We're going to die. Like our whole family's going to die. So he sends the brothers to Egypt to buy grain. And as the story goes in chapter 42, um, the brothers show up. They go up to buy the grain. Who happens to be there? Joseph. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. Well, they just think he's some high-ranking Egyptian official. So when they get there, what do they do? They bow in fulfillment of what God had disclosed back in chapter 37. They don't recognize him. Now, the next several chapters, it's a fascinating read. Incredible story of mercy and redemption. It's beautiful. Take the time to read it. I'm just going to summarize it this way. The next few chapters is Joseph trying to determine if the brothers had any remorse over what they'd done. It's just trying to figure out, did they, did they ever own to this and confess it and repent of it? Like, did, they, uh, did they learn their lesson from what they did? Anyway, long story short, man, they hug it out. Like, it is, it's, it's awesome. I love it. It's a beautiful story. The family comes together. The family's reunited. Jacob leaves back with home, and they all move to Egypt to be with Joseph. Uh, it, like, it's such a good scenario there now. Uh, because Pharaoh loves Joseph so much, he gives land to Joseph's family. Is the situation been redeemed yet? Not quite. Not quite. Jacob, later on down the line, passes away. He dies. The brothers freak out because they think that Joseph is going to get all Michael Corleone on him. So, because they had watched Godfather 2, and they know what happens when you betray a brother. When a parent dies, that's when you kill Freda. That's when you kill the brother who's betrayed the other brother, if you wait till the parents are gone. So, they know Sicilian code. So, anyway, in, verse, in chapter 50, verse 18, it says that they bow before Joseph, pleading for their lives. All right, so they're bowing again. They're pleading because they think their only reason he hasn't done anything to them is because Jacob's been alive. They don't, and he'd been wanting to spare Jacob of losing all his sons. So that's the only reason. So they think that the vendetta is upon them. So they're upset. And then in chapter 50, Genesis 50, verse 20, one of the most important statements in the entire Bible. Joseph says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What he's saying to his brothers in that moment is like, you know what? Yeah, you did harm me. You did evil. Brothers, you did evil against me. Look at what I've endured all these years. I've slave, in prison, wrongly accused. You sold me for a few pieces of silver. What did I do to you? Look at how much I've, I've had to suffer because of the evil that you did for me. And what he's saying in that one statement is this. I'm okay with it. Because regardless of what you intended and why you did it, and regardless of Potiphar's wife and the cupbearer when he forgot, regardless of what they intended when they did what they did and accused me and forgot about me, regardless of the evil that evil people have done to me, God meant it for good. Who's good? Joseph's? No. Egypt's? No. It was for the good of God's glory. It was for the good of the good plan that God had put in place. Go back to where I began. This story begins with God calling Abraham, saying, I'm going to turn you into a nation. I'm going to make you a family. And through this family, I'm going to bless all the families of the world. The famine threatened the family. If the family starves to death, guess what happens to God's promise and God's plan? It dies. It died. The reason Joseph went through everything he went through was to be in a position where God would use him to keep his promise and his plans alive. 
God's good plans for us is for him, and just, just slow your mind a little bit around this, is for God to share his glory with you, with us. For us to actually feel the warmth of his light upon our hearts, to, to see his light lighting our path. I, I want you to know that God actually does desire health and wellness and wholeness and perfection and bliss. But we messed it up. We poured sugar in the gas tank. We mucked it up all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when we sinned against him. We sinned, we rebelled, we disobeyed the one command to just not eat one fruit. We couldn't even keep that straight. And through that one sin, death and disease and darkness and despair and depression and lostness and brokenness, everything got ushered into this world as a result of that sin and every other sin that's occurred since. So it, it threw a wrench in God's good plan. But God, we know, is all-powerful and all-loving and all-wise, and he's not so easily thwarted. So he put a plan in place to keep his plan in place. He rolls out this plan, and that's the whole thing about Abraham, this lineage, that through the lineage and the descendants of Abraham, he's going to bring in a Messiah, a deliverer to rescue us out of the mess that we created going to rescue us out of our sin and the eternal consequences of our sin. So in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman of who? Mary, a descendant of who? Abraham. And that would not have happened had the family starved 2,000 years earlier before this took place. Jesus, folks, now let's bring it into into Jesus' day. Because there are incredible uh, overlaps between the story of Joseph and that of Jesus. Jesus never did anything wrong, yet he was hated and betrayed. Joseph was sold for a few pieces of silver. Guess who else was sold for a few pieces of silver, betrayed for a few pieces of silver? Jesus. Who else was wrongly convicted of a crime they had never committed? Jesus. Who was betrayed by his own people? Jesus. Who endured horrible, horrible suffering, not because of anything he had done, but because of what others did to him? Jesus. So Jesus comes down, and folks, he is nailed to a cross, and it's on the cross that God's plan unfolds. It's on the cross where he sacrificed himself to make sure that God's good plan would take place. See, like, evil men grabbed Jesus on that one night, and they took him, and there was an illegal trial. Evil men then tortured him and beat him, and they they nailed him to a cross. Evil men meant evil against Jesus, not because he had done anything wrong. They just didn't like what he had to say. The truth offended them, or the fact that there may be a God who would rule over their life offended those people, so they hated him. Evil men had evil intentions, but what Man meant for evil, God meant for what? For good. And God took the ugliest, most evil, horrifying moment in all of history, and he turned it into the most glorious, the most magnificent good that has ever happened or ever will happen. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sin. He made amends for our sin. He made reparations for our sin. He did what we could not do. We're in this pit of darkness and despair and death. And Jesus, he went to the cross to pay it in full so that we may be forgiven. So that then, folks, he went to the cross so that then the light of God would shine through the cross to us. So that those of us who are in darkness are called out of darkness and into his what? into his life, so that those of us who are far from God would come to know him. It is all about the glory of God. The reason God has done everything that he has done is for the good. It is for the salvation of man. It is for the blessing of the nations, so that everyone would come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's everything. That is the goodest good any of us could ever want. The point of this story is not that God will use all the stuff in your life to redeem all the stuff in your life and make you prosperous and comfortable here on earth. That is not what this story teaches. 
The point of this story is that God uses everything so that his good plans are fulfilled. That's the point. Nothing is wasted in God, in God's hands. Nothing is wasted. Everything is to fulfill his plans. The point for us of this story is actually to teach us perspective. Perspective because it's not about us. It's not about us. We're Anthem Church, so let me use a musical illustration. God is the great composer He's writing this beautiful, eternal song of his glory right now. He's composing it. Each of us comes into this world. We're born a note, a lone, dissonant, sinful note, an A, a C sharp, a D, a G note, etc. All of us, sinful notes just out on our own around in this universe. And then what God does is that he takes our, our dissonant, ugly note, and he cleanses us. He forgives us of our sin. And then him, the great composer, takes us as a note and he scores us into his song. By his grace through faith in Jesus, we become a note, one of many notes in the song of God. Well, guess what? Is a song about a note? No. A note is just a note in the song. A song is about the song. But every note has a role in the song. When a musician's playing, there's that note that's coming down the page, and then that note's getting excited. Oh, it's my time. It's my turn to do my thing. And the, the piano player hits that note, and that, that note's like, yeah, that was my role. It's an important role. It's a good no- It's a good role. It needs to be there. But it's just a note that's part of something bigger and better. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a note. You're wonderful in God's eyes. God loves you. You're saved. You're forgiven. But you're just a note. So the the story really begs a couple of questions of us. Are you a note in God's song? Have you trusted in God and in Jesus? Have you trusted in his story? Have you trusted in his purposes? Have you trusted in his plan? Have you given yourself over to follow Jesus? Because if you haven't, that is the good that you need done to you. Before anything else, you need that good done to you for you to be forgiven and become part of this story, okay? So that's question number one. The second question is this. How's your perspective? particularly when it comes to life's hardships and trials? Are you living with the right perspective, understanding that it's not all about you, but it's all about the glory of God and what he is doing? So years ago, um, at another church, I was college and singles pastor. Uh, and there's this girl, Dora, not Dara, sorry. Um, Dara, uh, born with spina bifida. So she was in a wheelchair I mean, ever since she was little, uh, on top of an incredible amount of other issues that she had to endure. Never once heard her complain, ever, about her situation. I stub my toe, and I cry out to God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> this girl is born with a next-level issue. Never heard her complain. Then there, there were those of us in that ministry where it taxed us. Because any time that we had a, a, a social, you know, mostly it was at my house where, you know, the college kids or singles would come to my, my place. Or we go to a passion retreat or conference. Anytime we went anywhere, someone had to drive to her house, wheel her out of her house, take her out of the chair, put, it in a, put her in a car, take the wheelchair down, put it in the trunk. Drive to wherever, take the wheelchair out, put it there. Pick her up, literally, out of the car, put her in a seat, take her wheel her over at my house and it was like five steps so two people had to get on each side pick her up so that she could roll up every time never heard her complain what's interesting is that i heard the rest of us complain and in many ways and that we, we i remember back in the day talking about this that god used her in her situation to build a bit of humility and patience in the servant's heart in the rest of us That's how selfish we were. Or one day, 
One of the best moments, best things I have ever heard in my life. Dara stepped in front of the group. She's never walked, let alone run. And she's up there talking about how much she loves Jesus, how much she trusts Jesus. And in front of everyone, and there were like 150 people in that room that day, I said, I can't wait to get to heaven one day where I can run around with you guys. She didn't ask to run around on earth. She just looked forward to the day that she would later. And very selfishly, I'll say this, and this is an odd thing to say, but I will say it to Dara to her face. If for no other reason her plight has blessed me, to hear her testimony and her sweetness of her, to strengthen me, bring conviction upon me and others. Good has been done. See, you've got to understand that when you go through bad stuff, it is not just that you can benefit, folks. It is for the good of others. And when we have to suffer for the good of others, guess who we're reflecting? Jesus. Is that not the gospel like in real life? When if we have to go through something ugly and tumultuous in our life and then God uses it to bring someone to faith or to encourage their faith or to have them to grow as a follower, I mean, is that not the good? That's what God is after. So yeah, he'll, he uses us. We're a note. He uses us for good purpose. And folks, he uses us for our own good, but for the good of others. So we have to ask, what is God asking of you? What is God asking you to sacrifice? How is God possibly using some of your hardships? And even if you don't know the answers to that question, to be resilient, saying, God's going to work it all for the good whether I see it or not, whether it is for me directly or for someone else, God is going to use it all for the good. Whatever the world means for me might be evil, but God means it for good. So all of us in here are going through something or we're about to go through something. Hold on to that truth that God works all things for the good, for yours and the world, and to bring his kingdom to bear upon this planet, to make his kingdom and his story grow. And it says in James chapter 1, take joy in your trials. You're going to benefit, if not in this life, clearly in the next. Others, others are going to be helped. Philippians 1.29 says, for it has been appointed to you, not brothers, not only to believe in Christ, but to also suffer for his name's sake. Why? Because God is glorified and other people are helped. So what is the perspective that you need to glean this morning? All right, I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm just going to give a moment of silence. Just consider what's been shared. Praise team is going to come. They're going to lead us in a closing song. The two questions again are, are you a note in the song? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? If you have not, I beg you, I urge you to make that decision now. Say, God, I trust you. I trust in your love. I've been running from you. I now give my life to you. I've done it my way. It doesn't work. Lord, I, I, I know Jesus died for me. I give my life, my heart, my soul, my body, my everything. I give it all to you now. That's question one. Question two is, are you living with the right perspective, particularly when it comes to life's hardships? Can you be someone that says that no matter what happens and evil comes your way, that God means it for the good? He will use it in you, and he will use it through you. Lord, Father, we thank you, and we come humbly before you, We know that you are God Almighty, that you're the creator, and that you love us. And you've made a promise to always be faithful to us. 
to watch over us and to guide us. You've promised that you'll never leave us. And Lord, we know that if our faith is in you, that you are always with us, including the hard times. So Lord, I do pray that we would all find courage and strength in that. And if there's anyone here that does not know you, Lord, I pray that they give their life to you now and embrace Jesus as Lord. That we all together would just sing of just how wonderfully faithful you are today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.